Ladies and gentlemen, make way for your four hosts. There's Ross, a man so passionate that he could turn any airline feud into a full-blown Kardashian drama. Then there's Christos, the only one of our four hosts who actually knows anything about flying a plane. Then there's Tom, a man so loud that he can still be heard over the roar of a GE90 engine. And finally, the man with the news, and the only one who talks any sense, there's Nick. This is the Radio Runway Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Radio Runway Podcast, episode eight. Can you believe it, fellas? I've got deja vu. I mean, (laughs) yes, it's awesome. I'm so excited. I have to say... It feels like forever since our last episode. It I really just love does, recording these with you guys, seriously. Talking anything aviation is great. Love it, love it. Yes, well, we are back, including myself, but not Christos, unfortunately, this week. He is on a night flight that got cancelled, so he stayed at home. Yes, but that's okay. He's studying hard. I'm sure it will pay off in the end, which is good, so... That's it, that's it. Anyhow, if you've checked out our Insta page recently, you'd see that we'd be covering Hong Kong International Airport as part of Airport Month today in the Black Box segment. And today, fellas, I have planned for such an occasion. In fact, I've planned this so well that we have a special guest in today. And that guest in question was one of the engineers that worked many years on completing the airport project. I think you know who I'm talking about already. Please welcome to the studio today, Bill Figgins, aka my dad. Welcome on the studio, dad. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you guys. And uh, look, I'm really pleased that you've given us an opportunity to have a chat about that project. It means an awful lot to me. Yeah. Every time you fly into Hong Kong International Airport, yeah, brings true. back a lot of memories. I was going to say, I'm sure we'll hear about it in the black box, but I can't believe it must be so incredible to be like to have had an integral part in something that you literally see all the time when you're flying in and out of Hong Kong. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's the memories of how it sort of came about and watching it come out the ground and the challenges you faced and the fun, the fun you had along the way. But uh, it, it means something special, and that's, oh, that's what I amazing. like about construction is, you know, yeah. you get to see the life cycle of the facility coming really through. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I, we've got a lot to look forward to in the black box by the sounds of it. Yeah. Before we jump into it, uh, boys, let's uh, listen to the housekeeping for this week. Here we go. This week on Radio Runway. The boys went for their monthly visit to Tullamarine to see the Singapore A380's return to Melbourne. Much like the SQ A380, we also see the return of something glorious this week on the podcast. Nick's dad. And the only son who talks any sense as well. I don't like the direction that it's heading. Sadly, much like his beloved Qantas 747, Christos will not be returning this episode because he's busy learning to drag race a Qantas 737 across Melbourne airspace. Very excited. As always, we're backed by Collectors Aircraft Models Australia. The team at Camos have always delivered the highest quality products across all variants of model. Our personal favourite and their most popular option are the incredibly accurate die-cast models. Any run of models that these guys do in a particular aircraft sells out quickly. So hurry to Brayside Victoria today or visit them online at www.camos.com.au. I love you all. That's the fortnightly wrap-up. Now back to the episode. There we go. Did you say... Bray- it's Bray Brook, isn't it? You said Brayside. Oh, I nearly had it perfect. Bray Brook, everyone to listen that's still listening after that. But yeah, there you go. Should we get into the black box? Let's, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Black box. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. And today, as I mentioned, I will be talking about Hong Kong International Airport. In particular, the shift of the location from the airport site from downtown Kowloon to a man-made island 30 kilometers west of the city. Now, before I get into that, I want to quickly touch base on the current political system of Hong Kong because it's very important as to why the airport has grown drastically from both a passenger and a freight perspective. So let's wind our clocks back to July the 1st, 1997. Very excited. Thank you, Christos. Where the Hong Kong handover occurred. And basically what happened here was that Britain, which had ruled Hong Kong for 156 years, had handed back the territory to the People's Republic of China. Now, before you start getting... To specifics, Scott Conway, and fact-checking me, saying it was only technically the new territories and bits to Kowloon that were returned. Yes, you are correct, (laughs) but we are an aviation podcast. I don't have time today to talk about the opium wars or the subsequent 99-year lease that the British thought was as good as forever. How short-sighted was that? 
Anyhow, going back to the handover, when Hong Kong returned to China, it wouldn't just become another Chinese city. It would actually become a special administrative region, or SAR, for another 50 years. And what this means is that until 2047, a one-country-two-systems doctrine would ensure Hong Kong would exist as a relatively autonomous part of China, with a political, economic and judicial system that is separate to that of the mainland. Fast forward to a decade later, Hong Kong has experienced some civil issues regarding China's cooperation towards the Sino-British Joint Declaration. This is a really touchy subject. (laughs) Yes, thanks, Christos. For that reason, it is for another time. Anyhow, through its independence from the mainland, Hong Kong has continued to grow as the main gateway between China and the Western world through facilitating open capital markets and trade. And as a result, the growth of these facets has spurred the rise of the aviation industry in Hong Kong. Now that we've got all that out of the way, let's get into the fun stuff, which is actually talking about the airport. So the current Hong Kong airport we know of today is located on an 18.98 square kilometre site, and that is including the new third runway system, which I will talk about at the end of the segment. Hong Kong International Airport, or HKG, is the current main airport of Hong Kong. First opened for commercial operations on the 6th of July 1998, the airport operates and connects to approximately 220 destinations globally by approximately 120 airlines. In 2019, Hong Kong witnessed 419,795 air traffic movements, including both passenger and cargo throughput. Hong Kong International Airport not only serves the city of Hong Kong, but other parts of the Guangdong province, specifically Macau and Zhuhai. For passenger services, Hong Kong is a hub for Cathay Pacific, Hong Kong Airlines, Greater Bay Airlines and Hong Kong Express. It also acts as a major cargo hub specifically for Air Hong Kong, Cathay Pacific Cargo, DHL, Hong Kong Airlines Cargo and UPS. However, it wasn't all like this. Those who are old enough, I'm looking specifically at you here, Tom and Dad, will remember one of the most iconic airports in the world. And that airport in question was Kai Tak. Kai Tak was especially known for its incredible approach pattern onto runway 13, where aircraft on approach would need to complete a low-level 47-degree right turn below 600 feet AGL at almost 200 miles an hour. It would then skim the tops of high-rise apartment buildings before landing onto the runway. And it's also worth noting that overshooting the runway wasn't an option, because the harbour sat on the other end of it. So pilots really did have to be specially trained to land in Hong Kong. So so overshoots were what? They're highly likely. Okay, interesting. Yeah. It only happened on a few occasions, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Moving on. Now, Dad, you've actually had the experience of landing at Kai Tak on multiple occasions, so maybe you can recall your own experiences of landing there. I'm very jealous. It's... It's one of those really unique experiences that you could ever get. Uh, the first time I moved out to Hong Kong was sort of like uh, mid-1994, so the Kaitak was still operating very busily then, and uh, we'd heard a lot about it, and taking off on the flight, you know, even then I just tried to make sure I got a window seat, just get yourself ready and stuff like that. Well, coming in is quite surreal, so... You're coming down and you're starting to see the roadways and stuff and you're coming over. And suddenly, like, you're looking out the window, you're looking horizontal and you're looking into someone's apartment. What? And, you, you know, it's it's so surreal. And then suddenly the, the plane banks and you know when it banks, you're pretty much down on the ground and stuff like that. And so you're just sort of glad you've got there. But, you know, it's so exciting to oh, sort of be gosh. part of that. But... Is that is that approach still uh, a thing anywhere else in the world today? A kind of approach. You there's, know? there's nothing anything like it. I know the bank. So pilots knew when to bank because they saw this checkerboard on a hill, and they used yeah. to call it Checkerboard Hill, and that still exists to this day. You can actually still visit it. Uh-huh. And Kai Tak right now, as it stands, has turned into a cruise terminal. But uh, some of the things, like I say. I used to go there quite regular to watch planes coming in and stuff like that because the nature. You're walking through the streets and like they go down the, you know, it's like they're going down the streets. You know they're coming, you can hear them. Uh, 
just by the airport fence and stuff like that where you used to look out on the you could look back there's a little road viaduct and stuff like that you could hear the planes you couldn't see them and then suddenly over the viaduct the planes come but a special one for me and the what the wife used to sort of go to we used to go to a restaurant which is on one of the rooftops in Kowloon and mm. that was virtually on the approach so you could sit there and you could look out and you'd see the lights of the planes coming towards you just off, okay, and oh. then he'd turn around right in front of you, so you could just turn your head almost 90 degrees and just watch the thing land. But oh, yeah. probably one of the most exciting flights I did go into Kai Tech was I was we did a little bit of work in the Philippines and uh, we sort of got up in the morning and we were flying. It, it'd been a pretty rough sort of bit of weather, a bit of typhoons coming through and stuff like that, but. I remember coming in, it was a bit bumpy ride and stuff like that, but obviously very low cloud and stuff. And you sort of know that you're due to land, you know. You But you're looking out the wind and there's still cloud, there's still cloud, there's still cloud. And basically the cloud cleared literally seconds before the plane bumped down. And so hats off to the pilot who landed that because wow. he must have landed that with no visibility whatsoever, so you know, goodness me, so what what airline was that with? That was Cathay Pacific. I yeah, did a right. lot of playing with Cathay Pacific and British Airways at that particular time. But uh, you reckon it could have been Mitch? <laughs> <laughs> he, <laughs> I bet he would have been all about. Oh yeah, mate, that's easy. Just uh, flying into low visibility like that. Oh, I do it every day, mate. Shout out, Mitch. Yeah, yeah that's seriously unbelievable. It would have, was it like almost like um like an anxious experience. It, not so much, you know. You know when you're going into, you know, like bungee jumping or something like that. You know, you know it's anxious, but there's that level of excitement and stuff like that. So you're not, you're not panicking or nothing like that. You know, you just great. it's really, it's really a good experience. And I think everybody who flew into Kaitak, you know, they'll remember it really fondly. Yeah. And it was a, it was a sad day when he when July the sixth, you know, when the the last plane sort of. You know, took out of Kaitak and obviously in the morning landed in Cheklap uh, Kark. That was an exciting time, and I was fortunate enough to be part of that. You know, part of that. Sort really, of the, the, work, the handover work, as it were, work, working at the airports and stuff like that. So, wow. my my role at the airports transitioned that sort of transfer. So, yeah, so we'll get into that. Um, we'll get into that transition a bit later because it's very interesting what happened on the first day in Hong Kong. That's actually one of the questions I got for you later. A few things went wrong. Oh, okay. Yes. I was gonna I was gonna say before we move on to the next part, Bill, would you when you're on a flight arriving into Kai Tak and you're sitting um on the window seat, you're mentally preparing for the awesome approach that is about to happen. Have you ever landed the opposite way and it was yeah, boring? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a bit disappointed actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I just had to put that out there. You're sort of you're sort of watching that you're sort of watching that flight radio and stuff like that and you're sort of like you see you're sort of seeing like, you know, which way you're gonna go in, which way you're gonna go in, which way you're going in and it's like shit, we're not gonna go in that one. <laughs> 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 but, oh, but it's still a waste always, of money. No, no, it's not a waste of money. It's Hong Kong is a fantastic city and Coming into land anywhere, if you've got clear views over the island, and it's a beautiful city to sort of come into. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, coming back to Kai Tak in the 1990s, it was the third busiest airport in the world with the highest amount of cargo throughput at 1.56 million tonnes a year. The city had far outgrown its single runway airport and needed to move desperately. Rather interestingly, there were planning studies that date back to 1974 which identified the islands of Cheklapkok, or we call it CLK, and Lam Chau as a potential location for the new airport of Hong Kong. Potentially. Thanks, Christos. However, it wasn't until 17 years later in 1991 until Christos... Christos. Christos. Sorry, I've got Christos on my mind. I'm no longer the oldest member of the podcast. How good is that? He's a little bit suspicious. (laughs) Until construction of the project took place. Ah, Christos on my mind. Everyone listening at home, fact check this. Yeah, fact check that right now. Anyhow, this, ladies and gentlemen, is what sparked the beginning of the largest engineering project ever ever undertaken at its time. It required engineers to flatten reclaimed land in the South China Sea, build two runways, build the largest passenger terminal in the world. But the airport itself only accounted for the fraction of the total project. 
Engineers were also tasked at building a 30-kilometer motorway and high-speed rail, which included the world's longest double-decker suspension bridge and a one-mile-long tunnel under the world's busiest harbor. The time allocated to complete all this, you ask? Only seven years. Surely not. And as I mentioned earlier, because of the Chinese handover in 1998, many Hong Kong residents feared that China would want to put a stop to the existing Hong Kong capitalist economy. And as a result, if the airport project wasn't completed by the handover, many feared that the Chinese would completely abandon the project. Therefore, the British wanted this completed before the handover. My goodness, it was a really pivotal part in Hong Kong's history in a way. Yeah, it really was. That's unbelievable. I never knew about that. That's why it was built so quickly. And it being built so quickly had ramifications on the first day, which obviously we'll talk about a bit later. I do need to be careful in what I say here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris Dustin. Well, now, unfortunately, today we will only have time to talk about the actual development of the airport itself. But as mentioned earlier, it's worth noting that the completion of the North Lantau Highway, the MTR Airport Express and subsequent Tung Chung Lines Western Harbour Crossing and the Chingma Bridge were all part of that same project with a seven-year deadline. In fact, the Chingma Bridge is so significant to Hong Kong that HSBC Bank actually featured it on their old $100 note. Really? It was. It was on the $100 note. The old big one. one. Yes. Big one. Not really. Oh, yeah. The $500 is the big one. $100 oh, gosh. In Hong they have a $500 note? $100 in Hong Kong is about 20 AUD. Is it yeah. really? Yeah. We're uncultured, just so you know, Tom and I just... <laughs> I might so have you, a $100 need to, note. You need to be really Cathay specific here. Actually, I, I dealt with Hong Kong dollars all the time at Menti's Cargo. All you, the time. You did not hear that, Tom. Never no, mind. No, I did not hear that. <laughs> He'll hear it in the edit. That's all right. He's a little bit suspicious. Anyhow, coming back to the airport, I mentioned that planners looked to two remote islands in the South China Sea to build the projects. However, there was an issue. Both these islands had rocky and mountainous terrain, definitely not suited for any airport. The solution in the end was to blow up the two islands and move 600 million tonnes of earth to create a new flat 12.48 square kilometre island. And once the land was eventually flattened, it allowed workers to start construction on the main passenger terminal building, which is where Dad comes into play. So my initial question to you, Dad, is what was your role on the main terminal project and what did you specifically look at? So I joined the project around about sort of late 1995. Okay, I was employed by the then Provisional Airport Authority. So at that stage, work had actually started being ongoing, basically. I'm actually in the field of sort of mechanical and engineer, mechanical and electrical engineering design. So my role was primarily in the construction department, okay, overseeing the construction of the mechanical and electrical systems, mm. and particularly focused in the South Concourse. Okay, I can't recall what the gates are, but it's the concourse. It's the concourse basically where yeah. Cathay Pacific generally. Aligned. Yeah, right. So okay. that was one of my that was my sort of main area That's to like sort a of look look after pivotal part of the project to sort of look after the sort of installation of the mechanical and electrical systems and take it right the way through con- mm. commissioning. Mm. Uh, an- another element which I, s- I looked after was obviously the fixed gangways. Okay, that obviously the fixed gangways and obviously passenger loading bridges across all the s- across all the airport. Okay. Really. So I was looking at those as well. Okay. A lot and, of them, there's then, a lot. <laughs> and then as he got further in, obviously he looked after some of the stuff when he went through the fire engi- the fire engineering, the fire testing, etc. But obviously the, my main focus was always in the South Concourse, etc. and sort of bringing mm. that. But like I say, it was very... When I went there, like I say, sort of late 1995, okay, the roof wasn't on and, you know, there's, there's slabs coming up and so... So it was very fresh. Yeah, and so very, very fresh. And so some of my some of my earlier work there, which was quite sort of scary in a way, was basically these columns. When you, you see the columns, they're quite high when you're in the terminal. Or okay, but you imagine there's no slabs there and they're going down to the ground, okay? These columns often contain the rainwater pipes, which is like a siphonic drainage mm. that's... So you had to go up on the top of the, and you had to test pressure test and all those oh things. Oh my and gosh! So, so you got really good views of the sort of, but but yeah, it was it was a for me coming from England. Like I say, it was, at that stage, you know, it was 
it was an enormous project to be involved in and uh, you know was, just to get on the island and see yeah. what was happening was amazing is it safety big part of the project then by the sounds of it safety's a, safety's a big part of all construction projects and mm. stuff like that and like i say with so many people working around there and obviously so many deadlines okay Safety is one of the critical things that we sort of mm. look at and stuff like that because it's very easy to sort of uh, cut corners, yeah, try to meet deadlines a, and stuff. Have a bit of a Wuhan 10-day yeah, yeah, hospital yeah. situation kind of thing. But, but safety always takes priority and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Especially like in the – I mean, obviously safety standards have been continually engineered over years, but like yeah. in the 90s on a project of this scale, yeah. you know, but uh, I, th- I think I was mentioning to Nick one of the one of the most sort of like not interesting or amusing or whatever is obviously occasionally we'd have dignitaries coming to see what was happening and stuff and we had junction men fly in and all the, oh. the governments and stuff fly in. But yeah, when yeah. these people come in and stuff like that, you know, the intention was you know we we needed to show progress more than what it was and sometimes you know. The, We'd sort of go in a particular area and we rapidly fit out that area and stuff like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when they went in, like you know, oh yeah, this is looking good and stuff like that. Yeah, but don't open the door, you know. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. golden. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, with a project of this size, there are many challenges, and one of the biggest challenges for building Hong Kong International Airport was the fact that it was situated in the middle of a typhoon zone. So they needed to build the airport so it could withstand some pretty extreme weather. And it only took one year for the airport to experience its first T-10 rated typhoon. And that was Typhoon York in September 1999. York hitting me. (laughs) Were you going to say that? I feel like Ross had that one lined up. Oh my. I was going to. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Please. So for those who don't know typhoon ratings, T10 is the maximum category. Basically oh. the worst typhoon you can get. Okay, pretend I didn't make a joke about it. Sorry. That's and <laughs> in Hong Kong at least, if a typhoon is a T8 or above, you don't have to go to school or work. However, one of the most devastating typhoons for the airport was Typhoon Sam, which occurred only a month earlier in August 1999. With winds gusting up to 100 miles per hour, China Airlines Flight 642 tried landing into Hong Kong during the middle of the storm. And if you think that's not ballsy enough, the pilot was also flying an MD-11. Oh my gosh. You're honk kidding me. No, stop. (laughs) Seriously, man. That's terrible. I'm ashamed. That's that's bad. Honestly ashamed. That's terrible. So so to clarify, that MD-11 survived the the approach? Like it, it made it? No, I'll go through what happened Bill's right now. Bill's shaking his head right now. <laughs> I'll go through what happened right now. Because on the second attempt of landing, the hard landing on the right main gear had caused the wing to dip during touchdown, causing the entire aircraft to flip over and catch fire. And from that flight, there were three fatalities and 208 injuries. And as a result of this, stricter flight rules were implemented around Hong Kong, as well as the airport investing big into infrared weather radar systems to predict typhoons or storms far in advance. So this happened literally a couple of months after the airport opened. The MD-11 has been the revolutionary trigger for so many different things. Turns out Hong Kong, one of them. (laughs) It made the whole world safer. Yeah, I was going to ask, since the implementation of those weather systems uh, at the airport, have there been an incident similar to that? No. Not that I know of. There's been a, there's been another incident that's pretty. I'd, I'd like to say Where the damage was that extreme. No, no, not at all, not at all. There, there was a, there was another incident with a Cathay Pacific flight. It was a A330, of my understanding, and the throttle was on full, and they couldn't sort of, uh, they they couldn't pull it back. I remember that one. This is a really touchy subject. The fact check one. I everyone listening at home, fact check this. Yeah, True. I don't know too much about it, it though. Aussie pilots, I remember that. Really, a CX. Yeah, Cathay. Cathay have a lot of Aussie pilots. Yeah, I know sure. one in particular. Shout out Tom Hennessy. If you listen to the podcast, shout out ex Cathay pilot Mitch Hutchinson. That's it. Oh, actually, Tom is an ex Cathay pilot as well. To be fair, yeah. however, back to the terminal. Despite a few broken windows, 
the building remained completely intact to the two typhoons. Wow. And to design such a large building to withstand such extreme weather, the side glass panels of the terminal were actually designed to break during high-speed winds. Through this, it relieved pressure from the main structural elements of the building, which allowed it to withstand a typhoon. Now, shifting over our focus now to a very specific date, July the 6th, 1998, the closing day of the old Kai Tak International Airport. Here we go. And the opening of the new Hong Kong International Airport. At 1.28 a.m., a Cathay Pacific A340 departed Kai Tak to the new Hong Kong International Airport. This would be the last ever aircraft to leave Kai Tak. Following its departure, a ceremony was held in the ATC Tower, where Richard Siegel, the director of Civil Aviation Hong Kong famously stated, goodbye Kai Tak and thank you, while turning off the runway lights for the last time. And while this was happening, all the airport equipment at Kai Tak was getting moved over to the new airport in Lantau overnight. They had seven hours to make over 800 trips to move all of the equipment. 800? 800, that is correct. 800 trips. Here I am thinking they would just shove it all in the in that A340, the last flight, and bring it with them. They probably you'd they think probably, they would. They probably would have moved some of it, but once again, it's a huge airport we're talking about here. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of equipment. And overnight. finally, overnight, overnight, exactly. So is this stuff that couldn't be? It was critical components that couldn't be moved from Kaitak until after. Exactly. Whoa. Yeah. And bear in mind as well, while this was happening, the first flight to land at the new Hong Kong International Airport was in the air. Flight CX-889 was scheduled to land at 6.30am, which it did, from JFK, and it became the very first passenger flight to land in Hong Kong. But, as I mentioned, on its opening day, and after spending $20 billion on the project, it turned out that there was very little to celebrate about. So, question for you, Dad. Recall back to the first day when the new airport opened. Many say it was a disaster. From your memory, what went wrong? Look, I don't recall it as being the disaster that you sort of say, because like I say, at that stage, I was still working and moved across and doing some work with Cathay Pacific on their lounge and stuff like that. So the the one thing I do remember in the morning, okay, is, you know, know, rocking up to work and stuff like that. And the the arrivals, the, the arrivals area, you know, the sort of meters and greeters area, it's absolutely jam-packed, you know. It was just so, so busy and stuff like that. And what apparently had happened is a lot of people from Hong Kong had sort of gone to the airport and et cetera and to sort of witness it for the first time. You know, they'd been doing tours and stuff before, but a lot of people had gone there. And so a lot of the sort of criticisms came around sort of like, in particularly on the land side, you know, about the sort of lack of lack of washroom facilities, food running out, et cetera. But no one in the right mind could have envisaged what was sort of happening there. But like you say, a lot of the other things were coming down into sort of system failures and et cetera. Now, you know, it's partly to be expected. And I think the Hong Kong Airport Authority, they turned things around pretty quickly over a very, very short period of time and stuff like that. And things like were happening in the baggage handling system and stuff like that. It was dust on the sensors and stuff like that that were sending things and people getting used to things and stuff. So, but uh, they they got through the day and stuff like that. And obviously the news was you know the the news come across as pretty sort of bad. Okay, but but fair play to the people working there and stuff like that. They got everything through the day. Mm. And uh, if you look, I think Denver Denver International Airport did a very similar sort of transition. Okay. They spent apparently that spent months, you know, looking with the sort of residual sort of issues and stuff yeah. like that. But you've got to bear in mind that you know it's something the scale of Kaitak, you know, to sort of uh, that sort of airport, you know, the, the size, the pure scale of that airport to sort of sort of build it, commission it, get things tested, okay, you're never going to be able to sort of get the full experience of what you're going to get, okay, mm. until you actually operate it. And there's like there's typically around about a sort of year after construction where you go through what they call the ORAP period, you know, the operational readiness and airport transfer, and there's a lot of testing done, a lot of, you know, so a lot of the things have been sort of like bugged out, but you're not testing it at full capacity and stuff like mm. that, and it suddenly happened. 
Yeah, you don't get the full operational official yeah. test until you're really you're yeah. you're in the deep. You, yeah. You're head first. Yeah. My question is that a lot of those um, infrastructural elements that were transferred over like overnight yeah. were they those critical components were they already uh, I guess removed or refitted in a way that you could just have them ready to go or did you have to did no, they have to go through and pull everything out no a lot of it's like ground services equipment and oh, mobile equipment and stuff oh, okay. that sort of goes there okay so okay, systems right. like the fixed ground power and all that all that's brand new and all that's ready to okay. go all, all that's tested and stuff airport and equipment ah uh, that makes a bit more sense yeah but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of you know you're not going to sort of rebuy all this equipment and that gets transferred across yeah and, yeah, yeah. Or like the Swiss port and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like yeah. those, yeah. Yeah. Or exactly. Schmissport, sorry. Schmissport. Yeah. That's but, exactly But like right. I said, I think my, my biggest memory was just the pure amount of people there, you know. And mm. what I think really, you know, one thing I didn't pick up earlier is like during the construction of it, you know, when you're walking through, the, you know, when you're walking through the terminal and stuff and the check-in and stuff, you know. You thought to yourself, Christ, this this will never be used. It's impossible, you know, because yeah. you compared it against the size of Kaitak and stuff, and you thought, Phew, Christ, this is." But it's surprising how the capacity grew and stuff like that, and how you know, come very quickly to the, the sort mm. of expansion phases and stuff at the airport. You know? Yeah. So, uh, to use a sort of analogy in a way, it's sort of uh, the Kaitak, I guess, was ballooning, and then suddenly you. Give a much larger space in the new airport, and suddenly that balloon can just expand to whatever size, you know, it realistically is capacity-wise. Yeah. And I guess, do you think that was the first time that Hong Kong, you know, authorities or Hong Kong Airport, co- what was it, is it Hong Kong Airport Corporation? Like, what's yeah, the the airport Hong, Hong, Hong Kong Airport Authority? Yeah. Hong do you think that's yeah. the first time that they realistically knew exactly what their demand figure was? No, no, no. They've been working on that. I think right. part of, part of it was, you know, Kaitak was very, you know, it's the, the area of Kaitak. You can't expand. You, you can't. You can't yeah. do nothing about it and stuff like that. So there's no way in the world that it could sort of expand or do any more capacity. They needed a new airport. They mm. knew that. So capacity growth was obviously in there, and even the master planning and everything, including for the two runways and all the facility and stuff. Like the fact they've gone to three runways and stuff now is. You know, just testimony how that how that growth is occurring and stuff like that. But, so, but, it, but it was definitely it was definitely on the radar. Look, mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when uh, Kaitak closed down and comparing the operations of Kaitak to the new Hong Kong International Airport was Kaitak because of how limited it was in its capacity. All of the aircraft movements that were happening there were all wide body seven four sevens and triple sevens and whatnot. Whereas as time has progressed and airlines looking to uh, at more smaller and more fuel efficient aircraft, you'll find that. Uh, would you agree with me that a lot of the movements at the new Hong Kong International Airport are on smaller scale aircraft? Um, they're, they're on. Yeah. They're on. They're on smaller scale aircraft compared to a seven four seven, but that's global. Um, I'd yeah. say. Would you say that led to the new airport reaching its capacity far sooner than what anyone had imagined? Yeah, it did. We will get into this a bit later because obviously, me and you, Ross, worked on a project called the North Satellite Concourse, which was built specifically for narrow-body, smaller aircraft. Mm. Is um, that, I'm guessing that's in line with this global trend. It is in line, but it's in line with the ability to bring in new capacity um, with, okay. a, with a much bigger so airport. It's also using predictive models to see that it's going to... Exactly. Well, I'd say, I'd say Hong Kong to this day still is predominantly a wide-body airport. If you look at the main airline that operates out of... Hong Kong International Airport, it's Cathay Pacific. And until I think 2021 or whenever Cathay Dragon sort of merged into Cathay Pacific, Cathay Pacific would only operate wide body aircraft. And from memory, Cathay have probably about 150 aircraft in Cathay Pacific itself. They're highly likely. Highly likely. Highly likely. Thank you, Christos. And they're all wide bodies. So... I'd say Hong Kong to this day still is a wide-body aircraft, but it's, it's a wide-body wide airport. <laughs> Sorry. Heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Hong Kong is a wide-body aircraft. Who would have thought? Everyone listening at home, fact-check this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my bad. <laughs> but, yeah, compared to the 747s, it's uh, nowhere near 
what it was. Although there are a lot of 747s that come into Hong Kong, but they're all freight. There's no passenger mm. 747s yep. that come into Hong Kong. No more. Uh, my next question for you, Dad, is on top of working on the construction of the main terminal building at Hong Kong, one of your other projects was working on the wing, which was one of the flagship Cathay Pacific first and business class lounges. Now, the other night at dinner, you mentioned some interesting minimalist design features, including a bar, an escalator, and a water feature. Can you tell us about those as well as your experience building the lounge? Oh, I'll have to be careful here because I'm going to upset somebody. Uh, <laughs> no, no. So, uh, so basically, you know, part of the role when, when I was in the airports going through that ORAP period and stuff like that, then obviously the airlines start to come in and they start to sort of develop their lounges and stuff. And because I'd been in the primarily in the sort of South Concourse area and stuff like that. I was sort of like a seconded to Cathay Pacific oh. as part of their sort of uh, program to sort of uh, do that sort of ramp handling equipment, but also to look at the sort of, you know, deliver the the, the, the lounge, the wing. Okay. Did you retain access? Yeah, to the lounge? yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit, oh. for the first of all, but uh, okay. yeah, very, very little. <laughs> it was very little. But essentially, the the design they brought in this British architect, and uh, this uh, this architect had this concept of minimalism. Okay, that they don't they don't particularly you know you, you try to sort of keep things really bland and stuff like that. And uh, and it, on paper, it looked a really fantastic design, very sleek, etc. And stuff. And we we were developing that, but obviously. The operations of the lounge got transferred over to Peninsula Group, and then they started to come in. And this is this is a classic. Uh, this is this happens on every project that, you know, the sort of design and the operational requirements are very. You know, it can be very conflicting at times. Like you know, because planning for a square, yeah, well, trying to fit it through a yeah, circular hole. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like I said, this operator come on board, and a couple of them I sort of mentioned to Nick, like you know, it was basically the. Uh, they had this very long bar. It's called the, the obviously the long bar, but it was this big marble slab and stuff. And the architects decided, like you know, we didn't want to see any beer taps or nothing. You know, when you look at the bar, you just want to see this nice horizon of uh, marble. And you look out to the airfield and stuff like that. And, and that it made sense. You know, it made sense from that point of view. But when the operator comes along and stuff like that, and they had these special taps so that you didn't see it. And, but obviously they realised very shortly that you, you couldn't actually get a beer glass underneath the tap, and so they were... Oh, <laughs> my <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and so, so obviously there was a big change there. Uh, the, the, a lot of the signage was etched in the steel and stuff like that, so, you know, you had to be very close to it. When the, but obviously people, yeah. you know, they're trying to find... Where's the washroom or where do I put my bags up and where do I go in? They can't see the signs and stuff like that because... Oh, my goodness. So there's a lot of things a lot of things happening. They had this wonderful feature called... They had this wonderful feature called this... this it, was, it was called the wave pool, basically. So some of the lounges and restaurants and stuff. It was really nice. It looked like a frosty glass and basically they had this nice little water pool. And inside it, okay, there's these little devices which sort of created waves on the water and stuff and the light reflected off the water and on the outside you could see this lovely sort of uh, pattern of light sort of moving around and stuff like that and we tested these we actually went to Kaitak. we built a mock-up and everything in oh, that's cool. and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. we sort of tested it and stuff like that and it was really great but uh, it's it's just one of those things that multiple things come together when you're in construction and obviously you know the the drain to this pool was actually put Sort of like like twenty millimeters too low and stuff, and what that translated to the water was a little bit lower, and and so you started to sort of get this because when the when the wave machine was sort of working, okay, it was drawing in water, so it was sort of making a burp, 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 and we ended up calling the frogs. But, 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 <laughs> but, but, but oh, but, we've got realism of frogs yeah, inside yeah, yeah. there. But, the but, but there was a, there's, there's yeah. a few, and then obviously one of the other parts of the features was obviously we it, it being raised. This is a this is a you know this is on the ground. This water feature is and mm. stuff like that. We should have some sort of like step or something that people don't walk into it. And no, no, these are very you know these are top, these are the top executives of uh, businesses and stuff. They don't do silly things like that. And 
Oh, there couldn't on, possibly on, ever on, be any children. On, and on the first day, you know, the, the, the one of the top sort of premium flyers with Cathy, the first thing he did was looking at the screen, went to look at Sio, and just first thing he did was step in the water. And <laughs> oh. Was, uh, so did anyone oh, okay. else think of Michael Scott in the office yeah. who falls yeah. into the coin yeah. pond? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shout the office. Oh, that's a good show. Bill, you're, the more you talk, the more you're convincing me that we could actually be talking about Brandon Burke. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no way, no way in the world, no, no way in the world. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. They didn't miscalculate the no. distance for escalators. No, no, no. To the you, first g- you give uh, you know three de- three or four days. And it was running smoothly. It's, uh, it's a- <laughs> yeah, not three or four decades. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyhow, moving yeah. on from the opening of the main terminal, Hong Kong Airport continued to grow after 1998, forcing the airport authority to look at expanding from its single terminal operations. In 2007, Hong Kong Airport launched Terminal 2, which most people would classify as one of the most redundant airport terminals in the world. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a terminal. It didn't even have any gates in it. So redundant, in fact, that just 13 years later, in 2020, it was demolished. But we'll get back to that later. Moving on to some of the more useful projects, a new satellite concourse was opened up in 2010 called the North Satellite Concourse, which had gates, and subsequently the Midfield Concourse opened up in 2015, which also had gates. Now, Dad, you worked on the NSC, or the North Satellite Concourse, so I have a few questions for you. Number one, why was it needed? And number two, what was its purpose? Okay, so (coughs) it's needed, and... You know, we got picked up earlier about the, the you know the code C planes and stuff like that, and the, the smaller planes coming in. And uh, the site of the North Satellite Concourse used to be sort of six remote code E flight parking bays, basically. Uh, but essentially, what was happening was basically a lot of the planes coming in were sort of like they were code Cs and they were parked at the contact stands right on the main terminal and stuff like that, and. Whilst they get turned around a lot, when they're there, okay, you can't actually come in with this sort of, you know, the codies and the bigger planes and stuff like that. So you, you're, you're sort of like pushing the codies out to the remotes and stuff like that, which is, which is not beneficial and stuff like that. So basically, the they hadn't got to a stage where they were sort of going to do the midfield and stuff like that. So the the North Satellite Concourse. As I as I recall, it was a sort of way of sort of creating, uh, converting those six code, those six code e remote stands into a sort of small terminal facility, okay, which would accommodate ten code code C's, okay, and so we could take the code C's away from the terminal, okay, put them in a nice little dedicated stand and stuff like that, and obviously open up those contact stands then readily for the code E's and stuff like that. So it's a it's quite a sort of uh, quite a sort of good sort of move to do that the the issue at the time was obviously you know it was whilst it was a concourse it was trying to sort of get the people from the main concourse across and we did look at we did look at studies of sort of using tunnels and bridges at the time but obviously you know it just wasn't sort of uh it was like cost or feasibility prerogative at that particular time so we ended up sort of doing quite a lot of studies to sort of how we're going to get sort of uh the buzzies across into the terminal, etc., and then obviously, you know, trying to make that as seamless as possible and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, but it was a very that it was a special one for me because, as I said before, I'm a mechanical and electrical engineer by discipline. Mm. Okay, but on this one, you know, the company decided, you know, could I sort of oversee all the engineering? So, I started sort of. Uh, take a lot more look into the sort of civil engineering and the structure, yeah. et cetera, and the architecture. And That's stuff. great. So great opportunity yeah, to yeah, expand yeah. and develop. Yeah. 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 I'm just looking, sorry, I, my first ever introduction to the um, the different codes in terms of gate sizes and types. Just maybe just for our v- viewers at home, should we clarify what each code um, is for or what type Yeah, of so you up? mentioned code C and code E. Are they the two most common Gate sizes. Uh, you, you, you probably look at no. The codes are probably codes are probably the most common. Obviously, those are the those seven four sevens, etc. If you try to put that into context, okay. The codes are more sort of regional. Okay, this obviously this it depends on where you are. You'd obviously expect a lot more codes in sort of Australian airports with a lot of regional. <coughs> but 
Hong Kong airport is an urban stuff like that, so it needs to accommodate for those. Okay. Mm. Uh, what you what you tend to sort of what the trend is now, particularly with the with when the A three eighties come in, the A three eighties were more the sort of like what they call a code F. Okay, so it's a wider wingspan. Okay, so they've, they've sort of a lot more sort of tendency going towards what they call multiple aircraft ramp systems. Okay, so on a on a stand which can typically o- occupy an A three eighty. Okay. It can also be converted into two code Cs at the same time, so the same stand can actually be used for. We yeah. did we did that at Menzies yeah. Cargo. Yeah. Um, when we we'd have you know like a Cathay seven four freighter come in, uh, on you know Hotel Three, which is one of the standoff bays for cargo at Melbourne Airport. It taxi out, and then you'd have two retrofitted Qantas seven three seven freighters park at the same exact gate side by side, Bravo and Alpha. The same, so there you go. I didn't. I didn't know that that was essentially, you know, a gate coded, you know, code F or you know, code yeah, E, whatever yeah, it might have been. Yeah. There you go. So there's a lot of movement there. Probably the one of the biggest things as well is is around the main sort of processing area of the terminal. You know where you where you go through immigration and stuff like that. Okay, you want to try and get the bigger planes around there because that's where the that's where the bulk of the passengers are and stuff right. like that and they do tend to sort of higher volume of passengers sort of yeah. move the sort of uh, you know the, the smaller planes because you know there's less people congregating around those areas and stuff like that so there's airport planning is not my forte but obviously I think being part of the the role that I took in the North Satellite mm. Concourse okay allowed me to sort of delve a little bit more into mm. the sort of thinking of the planners and how they do that. And Exposed yeah. to a lot of it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, equally as important in Hong Kong is its level of air freight throughput. In fact, Hong Kong International Airport has been the world's busiest airport for international cargo. According to the Hong Kong Airport website, in 2021... Hong Kong International Airport handled 5 million tonnes of total cargo throughput, which accounted for 42% of the total value of Hong Kong's external trade. Facilitating all this freight movement are the several cargo handling facilities at HKG, including the Asia Air Freight Terminal, Cathay Pacific Cargo Terminal, DHL Central Asia Hub, the Air Mail Centre, and the Hong Kong Air Cargo Terminal, or HACTL, which is the single largest air cargo terminal in the world. Now, Dad, you've worked on a few airport freight projects such as Tradeport and DHL. So my question is, what can you say about working on those projects specifically? Freight is a different, it's a, it's a different ballpark altogether. Okay, so I did do some sort of resilience studies at Actual and stuff like that. Because obviously, you know, these things were put together quite quite rapidly and stuff like that. So obviously there's a lot of what they call resilience that goes into sort of the buildings as well. So make sure that, you know, if there's power failures or whatever, they fully backed up. A lot of it's to do with the IT systems and all that mm, sort of stuff. Mm. Okay, but uh, like Trayport, Trayport was, it's not airside. Trayport is, is purely landside, so it hasn't got an airside boundary and stuff like that. So basically it was, uh, it was taking, you had to, take stuff off the airside and take it to Trayport. Trayport was a unique, unique facility where it was like sort of they were taking components in from around the world and then they were assembling them into different components to send them out again and stuff like that. So it was sort of like a, it, not, not so much a sort of freight forwarding place, but also, you know, it, it Consolidation got a, a bit, place. bit more place. Yeah, and so yeah. that was an interesting one because obviously... You know, the, the the design of the floor plate had to be sort of quite flexible and stuff. And uh, mm. the beauty about that one, though, the client, because it was sort of relatively new, that concept was, okay, we managed to sort of get to sort of fly across to Europe and we went to BA Cargo and had a walk around their facilities wow. and Shiphole yeah. and... Shiphole, uh, that... Shiphole yeah, is yeah, a huge, yeah, huge yeah, yeah. Um, hub for freight. Yeah, yeah. And And... Your point about was Trade Hub was it Trade Port Trade Port sorry apologies, that's very it's it's only ever realistically seen in uh, airports that are bottlenecked, similar to a situation like Kitek Kitek I'm not sure if if Kitek had it but I know Kingston Smith has a few Trade Port style setups where, uh, for instance I know both Denata and Menzies Cargo have uh, external facilities where 
any freight and cargo that they receive that's consolidated, they take it straight from the aircraft out of the airport to a separate facility that's like yeah. 10 minutes down the road. You don't see that at somewhere like Melbourne or somewhere like Brisbane, Brisbane Denver, um, maybe Chicago, just because there's a lot of space surrounding the aerodrome that allows you to have a lot more airside facilities. I'm interested to see what happens with Melbourne when they build the parallel runways to see whether or not they implement trade port style. Yeah, it would be very interesting. Melbourne's yeah. got the space. They own a lot of land surrounding the airport. They've only utilised about maybe 40 or 50% of the land that it actually owns. My question on the trade port in Hong Kong, was that on the actual land used for the airport, like the reclaimed land, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's on the airport. Really? It's on the wow, yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because, like I say, it's what Nixus. So there's been quite a few being developed along there since, you know, obviously since it first opened and stuff like DHL moved in and created their freight forwarding facility. I was part of the expansion of that. Uh, but basically, when when Nick was talking about the the original airport, he was he's basically part of ten core projects. The old airport was, you know, mm. which included, as as Nick said, the main road infrastructure, and obviously also, but also, you know, the, the catering facilities, the sort of actel, you know, the, there was a lot of actel the, the airport man, you know, aircraft maintenance facilities. All of that was. All that needed to be sort of provisioned at the same time as they're building the airport and stuff like that. So there was a lot of activity going on in the sort of 90s, okay, in the early 90s and stuff to sort of get to that sort of opening time mm. and stuff like that. So, so like I say, if you if you put it into if you put things into context that you know on one day you opened it up and there's a, you know. You had a bit of a bad air day and stuff like that. It's, it was a hell of a project to mm. sort of uh, to recover to, as, fast, to, to as, recover as yeah. fast as it did. Probably took more than five days, but like I say, yeah, we managed to sort of uh, get on on top of things very quickly. Question to you regarding um, the uh, like you said, all these projects tying in together to one. Mm. Um, knowing what you do about engineering airports specifically. How common is it to have all elements freshly constructed versus, say, the new aerodrome is close enough or within a distance that you could utilise an old facility at the old aerodrome? You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's, it's quite rare to do something like Hong Kong. Okay? It's, it's very rare to do so. It's quite ambitious to, do, to take on a task like that. You know, it's because, it, like I say, it... It wasn't just at the airport. Everything was expanding back into the city. You know, the the airport express line and stuff like that. Had terminals, check-in facilities, and everything in the city. And you know, all, all of these things were different parties and stuff. And everything had to sort of come together, okay, at the right time and stuff like that. So it's very, very difficult. It's very sort of it's uncommon for do this, okay. Uh, I'm currently sort of working on the next probably big one for me is obviously Changi T5, which is again amazing. Okay, it's similar. It's it's similar. It's a brand new facility and stuff like that. There's there's interlinks with the existing facility and stuff like that, but by and large, you know, it's a it's a it's really it's really sort of standing out on its own. So. I have to say, I think Crystal speaks forever and at this table about Changi Terminal Five when he says very excited. Very excited. Very exciting. Now, it's funny that you mentioned um, aircraft maintenance because I was going to mention HACO, which is the Hong Kong Aircraft Engineering Company, a member of the Swire Group like Cathay Pacific. HACO is one of the world's leading independent aircraft maintenance group. Situated to the north of runway 07 right, HACO's three hangars service over 100 airlines specializing in aircraft MRO, including base maintenance, line maintenance, and cabin retrofitting. Furthermore, this is one of the largest aircraft maintenance facilities in the world, and it is on the island of Hong Kong International Airport, or CLK. Now, this must be a pretty big island. I just want to note that. Like, 18, well, it's now 18.98 square kilometers, because obviously they've, 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 They've expanded it for the third runway. Um, the original island, 
that was actually 1% of to- Hong Kong's total amount of land. I was just trying to think before they expanded the third runway for Hong Kong Airport. I'm trying. I'm mentally making comparisons here to Osaka's Kansai Airport because that was a, a dual runway airport with terminals in the middle, built on reclaimed land. Mm. I'm trying to mentally make the comparisons to that. Like Kansai is far more out at sea. Um, Obviously, these are two vastly different projects with um, many different variables. Yeah. But I'm just mentally, if I could make. Any comparison that is probably the second closest I can think of, but they are they are pretty sort of similar. Uh, Kansai Look, is far more out at sea though than Hong Kong. But the main difference is they didn't demolish Osaka's original airport, whereas they did for Hong Kong. So yeah. every everything was riding on Hong Kong getting it right. Yeah. I'm just sorry, I wanted to get a comparison for size. Um, the first place I looked up was Monaco or uh, Monte Carlo, and. Um, you could fit the entire city-state of Monaco inside the island of Hong Kong Airport. Could nine, you? Nine times over. Really? <laughs> like I, I can sort of, I can sort of vouch for that. Like I say, one of the one of the fun pieces when I started out, because obviously you know there was there was no runway or nothing like that. You know, the apron hadn't been constructed. It was all mm. reclaimed land and stuff like that, and you know the roads and everything were being built. Used to see these massive mining trucks just moving stuff around and stuff like that. But you know, we, we used to have used to have cars to sort of you know, to go go out there, you know, four wheel drives and stuff to sort of go and do side inspections and stuff like that. So occasionally, like you sort of you take a run out to where the air traffic control tower is now, you know, just because just have a little bit of run round and stuff like that. Hope your ex boss is not listening, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but like I say, you know, it was a, like I say, it was a good sort of you know a half hour run just to sort of get out there and stuff like that. And it's you know you don't realize how big it was and stuff like that until you. you, you it's when you drive around these things. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a massive. Even yeah. yeah, I'm jealous of even having the opportunity to look around it before it all went public, let alone the fact that you actually, you know, yeah. had a pivotal role in the, the mechanical elements of the, the airport. Amazing. Well, I want to tie up this entire black box segment by talking about the future of Hong Kong International Airport. Mm. So the current airport, as we know it, is set to exceed capacity. So as part of Master Plan 2030, Hong Kong will be switching from a dual runway airport to a three runway system This was chosen after the initial rejected plan to simply just improve efficiency on the existing two-runway setup. The new $18 billion project will not just involve a new runway, it'll be equivalent to building an entirely new airport next to the existing one. The new third runway system will facilitate the long-term growth of Hong Kong International Airport beyond 2030. It allows Hong Kong to remain competitive with other airports in the region such as Guangzhou Bayon, Seoul Incheon, Bangkok Savannah Boom, and Singapore Changi Airport. However, as mentioned, this project involves reclaiming around 650 hectares of land north of the existing airport, and on that land, a new 3.8-kilometre runway will be built as well as a brand-new terminal between the centre and north runway with 63 parking stands. In addition to this, an expansion to the existing terminal too and a 2,600-metre high-speed automated people mover and baggage handling system will transport people and their bags from the T2 check-in to the satellite concourse. The new project will enable Hong Kong to move over 100 million passengers and 9 million tonnes of cargo per year. In addition to this, the existing road infrastructure linking the city to the airport will be expanded, as well as the development of Sky City a new business and entertainment hub adjacently situated next to T1 and Asia World Expo. It's also worth mentioning that while the third runway in Hong Kong had officially opened in 2022, Hong Kong still remains to be a two-runway airport for now. This is because the existing north runway, or now the centre runway, is closed for the next few years for reconfiguration, and this includes two brand new taxiways to the east and west of the old 07 left and two five right runways, so that aircraft landing on the new runway can access T1 without crossing the centre runway. The remainder of the project, which includes the new terminal, is scheduled to be completed next year in 2024, 
And for me personally, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the finished product. But for now, that marks the end of my black box segment on Hong Kong International Airport. Wow. Jeez. That is incredible. I, was I, I just want to note, um, I came into this not knowing too much about Hong Kong. My dad's told me a little bit and pieces here and there because he used to go there once every th- few weeks for work. Yeah, send us a review, Scott Conway. Uh, yeah. Let us know what you think. Bill, I'm going to be honest. My dad's probably listening to this just filled with nostalgia. He too's flown flown in and out Flew. of Kaitak. He, yeah, he's flown in and out of uh, Kaitak many times, and and hearing everything you've had to say tonight, he's gonna he's gonna wish he was here to ask you more questions. Yeah. I think, <laughs> but um, no, that's amazing. Thank you for just indulging in. No, no, thank you for inviting me, Luke. It was really um, good. I've been listening to the uh, podcast since yeah. it's been starting. It's really good. So it's, yeah, uh, well, it's great to have you on. Starting to sort of. Uh, be invited. Yeah, no, thank you. Oh, no. mate, it was yeah, a pleasure, honestly. Thank you for pro- providing all that insight into Hong Kong Airport. Like, I really didn't know much about it previously. I believe I knew a thing or two about the North Satellite Concourse. Yeah, only because we've done an entire <laughs> project on it. <laughs> yeah. Shout out Gary Lawson-Smith. Hey. If, he, if he's listening. <laughs> if he's listening to the podcast, yeah. I, the only exposure I've ever had to um, the current Hong Kong Airport is through the B1M. And that, again, the B1M's great. Very good. Thanks, Fred Mills, mate. Shout out. If B1M, you're listening, I'll be here. Yeah. Yeah, B1M is really good. He's thorough for yeah. all infrastructure projects. Yes. So um, that's really uh, the f- uh, Terminal 5. No, Terminal 5? Hong Kong? Not Terminal 5. Ter- um, three, terminal 3. The, new, the newer one that kind of mirrors the, the older one. Oh, the new satellite terminal. New satellite I, I don't terminal, think they've yeah, actually. Right. Sorry designated it a name yet if they have i actually don't know what it is but um what's actually the, the, happening the mid, midfield no the midfield already exists it wouldn't be called the midfield um i don't know it'd be called the northern satellite or whatever whatever direction sure. they haven't figured out yet just name it exactly that. but the existing terminal two that i mentioned that i said was redundant that's being completely overhauled and expanded so that'll be the main check-in sort of area mm for those passengers flying out of that new satellite uh, satellite terminal. So basically that you'll check in there, um, all your bags and passengers will be transported on some high-speed automated people mover and the sort of conveyor belts carrying the bags will travel along with that as well at ridiculously high speeds. I uh, can't tell you how fast, but they mm. are pretty fast. Mm. Um, and then you'll get to that remote terminal um, and... You know, that'll be that. I'm not too sure what airlines will operate out of that, whether Cathay Pacific will move over there. Because as, as it stands at the moment, Cathay Pacific operate out of the existing Terminal 1 and Hong Kong Airlines, which is the other big international one, operates out of the midfield. So that's how it stands at the moment. But it could switch up after 2024, 2025 when it finally opens. And Do you think you'll have... A piece of the pie involved in anything coming? No, not at, not in Hong Kong, not at the moment. No, so uh, I think I'm going to be pretty tied up with the sort of Changi for the next foreseeable future. I think. Yeah. Well done. Should we get into the quiz show? I think we should. We should. Because uh, I'm hosting it this week, and my game is crack the code. Now we all know the rules. Do you know the rules? So basically, I'll, I'll explain <laughs> the rules to Dad. I just realised Dad's here. I'll explain the rules. Basically, I will list out a three-letter airport code and you've got to tell me the city that airport is in. The city or the name of the airport? We had this debate last time. No, the city. Just I I only want the city that that airport airport is located in. So if you say AVV and I say Melbourne... I'd give it to you, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I just want to note that because it's now episode eight and I am yet to win, I'm I'm bringing my A game. Yeah, no remorse. Well, you better bring it, Matt. I'm ready. If, if the first airport is HKG, <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. It could be. MFM. Get get your buzzers ready, and yeah. your buzzer is your name. So if you shout Ross. out your name first, Just I testing. will allow you to answer the question. Without yes. further ado, let's get into the show. Here we go. Slick there, there. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Anyhow, here we go. Anyhow, getting into the first question. Where would I find the airport code HTI? Tom. Go for it. 
Hamilton Island. That's correct. One point oh, for Tom. Ooh, I, okay. thought, I thought I'd do a Hamilton Island as Christos. This isn't here. here. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is a really touchy subject. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, let's move on to question two. So, for another point, where would I find the airport of JNB? Tom Ross. I'm willing I, to go. I, I know I, he, I, he. I had a. I had a stroke. That's <laughs> okay, mate. You, you'll okay, need Ross. it. Trust me, right, you'll need right. it. You go. You go. Johannesburg. That is correct. Okay. It's one each between. I've got to give him at least one point, you know. And Ross. So when you when you listen is... back to the edit, I genuinely sounded like I was having a stroke. There. <laughs> well, sound by the way, then. <laughs> That's it. Add it in for next episode. Yeah. Next airport. M R U. Tom. Tom, go for it. Is it Port Lewis? That is correct. Yes. That is correct. Yes, 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 yes. Let's go. Thank you, Scott Conway, for reminding me. I would never have guessed that one. For the listeners out there, for the listeners out it's it's, uh, East Africa. For the listeners out there, specifically uh, Scott Conway. I know exactly where this is going. Port Lewis is actually the airport where... Emirates sends their A380 and it has the lowest population, not Christchurch. So, <laughs> per city, I have oh, nothing fact little- checked the fact checker right there, mate. Really? No. Well, I know, look, I know Nick said he's fact checked it, but just for all the viewers at home, everyone listening at home, fact check this. Fact check Nick. Thanks, Christos. Okay. Fact check me. So we're on two for Tom, one for Ross. It was it first to three? No, zero no, for Dad. Yes, it's first to three. I forgot to all say. Right, cool. Good game. It's been fun, mate. First to three. Because I'm about to win. Sorry. Anyway, Get continue. Lost. Could be the last code that I'll read out today. If Tom gets this one as quick as he can, or it might be down. Get your hand heat. off that buzzer. E-W-R. Tom. Newark. That's correct. Tom wins. Well done, mate. Episode eight, it's all yours. <laughs> can I just Let's say go. that was out of sympathy? Oh, <laughs> Wow. That is, that's harsh, bro. That, I feel that. So, yeah. Oh, well wow. done, Tom, it took me mate. eight episodes, but I finally... You finally got a dub. You finally got a dub. That's right. I got a few dubs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we know <laughs> that. We don't need to hear that. Thank you. My dad, in converse, random aviation conversations that we have week to week, somehow you always come up with your graduate knowledge and always really? it'll be a case of... I just don't know how he does it. That's, that's hilarious. It's. I wish I had more of a useful talent, but... There you go. <laughs> oh, mate, I'm forever impressed. But no, I'm glad to finally get a win under my belt. Well done, Tom. Well done. That's the episode. Very impressed with the black box this week. Um, and it is that's that's also a great way to cap off Airport Month as well. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed Airport Month. It was a great episode last time with Ross, Tokyo Narita. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to a little bit about Hong Kong International Airport. As I mentioned, we only talked about the airport itself. The project consisted of many infrastructure projects to actually link that airport to the main central district of Hong Kong. But hopefully Mm. you enjoyed listening to that today. And once again, thank you so much, Bill Figgins, for coming on the show. We yes, really appreciate thank you very much for coming Dad. on. Thank pleasure, you. Pleasure. Very much. In fact, wait, where is it? There it is. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. Yes, appreciate you coming on and um, regaling us with some incredible knowledge with uh, with Hong Kong Airport and, and Kaitak as well. So, yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, from all of us here, uh, a big thank you for listening all the way through. And I hope you have a good next two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks' time on Monday. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Catch you later.